Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Michael, professor at North Carolina State University, and we discuss the properties of the liquid metal element known as gallium, where gallium is being used in the marketplace, and how it could revolutionize efforts to reduce carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So what is that? There's like metal or something? What is this stuff? Yeah, so it's kind of the heart of it is gallium. And, you know, gallium is just uh, an element that's on the periodic table. And what makes gallium really special is that it's got a low melting point. So if you were to hold it in your hand, it would melt. I have a little little bit of it here. Is it toxic? No. So so that's kind of the other funny thing. So usually when when I tell people I work work with liquid metals, they think of one of two things. They either think of mercury, which is toxic, or they think of the Terminator, which is, you know, scary bad guy. <laughs> and so no, I always have to be a little bit careful because I I don't think that gallium has been super carefully studied. But one way to think about it or what I tell people is that the melting point of a material doesn't correlate with its toxicity. So if you think about water, water melts at zero degrees Celsius, but that's obviously it's not toxic. So the only reason people think mercury, um, like metals would be toxic is because of mercury, which is, is toxic. That said, gallium is not found in our diet, so it's not something that you would have naturally in your body. So I usually tell people to be a little bit careful, but if it does get inside your body, your body sort of treats it like it's iron. You know, so if you take a, like my wife sometimes takes an iron supplement to keep mm-hmm. from getting anemic and that ultimately kind of works, makes its way through your body and gallium does the same thing. So, so there's that. And then the other kind of weird thing about it is it has no vapor pressure. So what that means is, you know, if you, if you take a shower and you, you dry off with a towel, you hang up the towel, the water will evaporate. You come back the next day and the, the towel is dry, but this does not, it does not evaporate, at least not at room temperature. And so what that, that's important when you ask about the toxicity because it means you're not going to worry about breathing it. So you see, I mean, I've got this right here in the office. I would open it, but... And if you ate it, it would just be like iron? <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't eat it. I've gotten it on my skin before, uh, not on purpose, but, but yeah, it's, it is considered to have low toxicity. So um, we had a collaborator who came to me a few years ago, was a really brilliant guy, but he, he had this idea of using liquid metal for drug delivery. And um, yeah, I looked at him the same way you just looked at me. <laughs> like, hmm, interesting, but kind of a weird idea. And it, it turned out to work. And as part of that study, we, well, when I say we, it was you know, collaborative effort, but we made little particles and put them into to mice. And the mice were able to, we were able to kind of figure out where it goes. And also just kind of a funny, funny story. I had a doctor contact me, gosh, it was probably about a decade ago. And they were interested in using liquid metal for wires for pacemakers. So I would like literally be inside the body. Now it would be encapsulated in rubber or something like that. But the idea is that if you have a pacemaker, there's a battery source and then there's the pacemaker that's sending the signal to tell your heart to beat. And that wire looks like a kind of like a spring. And 99.9% of the time it works great. But if it breaks, that's bad news because that means your heart's not getting, getting the pacemaker signal. So he had the idea of using liquid metal as a, as a wire to sort of be indestructible 
so it could stretch. And that's one of the things that's really cool about it. But anyway, one of the concerns was whether it was going to be toxic. And so he said they were going to do some experiments. And I told, told him, oh, that's great. I'd really love to see the results of those. And he said, okay. And I didn't make much of it. Well, about a month later, I got a package in the mail, like a FedEx envelope. And I took it out and it looked like shrink wrap chicken, like kind of like flesh or something. And I was like, what, what is this? And so I contacted the doctor and said, I got this package. I can't make any sense of it. Like, what is that? And he said, oh, that, that's the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, when I said I want to see the results, I was like thinking of a plot or a, like a graph or just a write-up, but I didn't actually need to see that. <laughs> so anyway, they, this is a long answer to a short question, but they hadn't like injected it into rabbits as part of a controlled study. And um, rabbit was fine, other than the fact they had to dissect the rabbit to figure out that make sure everything was okay. So anyway, I'm still not at the point where I would, I would swallow it on purpose, but I also don't panic if I get it on my skin or even if I got a little bit in my mouth, I'd probably, I wouldn't be happy about it, but I, I wouldn't panic. That must be an interesting colleague you have, or I didn't know if it was a colleague <laughs> or friend, but to ship you the rabbit. Yeah. yeah, it was not the whole rabbit. It was like, a, like what you'd see if you bought chicken at the grocery store or something. <laughs> well, he did the work for you, right? He cleaned he it did. for you. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ultimately get the data on it? You know, it wasn't like a full-fledged study as far as I know, but they um, they, they injected in the rabbit. Of course, when you inject anything into your skin, you're going to get a little bit of irritation. So I think there was some irritation, but it didn't, didn't cause the rabbit to die. It didn't cause any... Um, I'm not a doctor, but it didn't cause anything to cause concern. And actually, gallium has been FDA approved. So that's kind of the ultimate thing, but it's been FDA approved for different pharmaceutical applications. And it was FDA approved as a... MRI contrast agent. So like when you go get an MRI done, but it turns out there's ones that work better. So we don't use it. For a while, it was explored as a replacement for mercury. For um, I just went to the dentist yesterday and got a filling. Now they don't use metal anymore, but they, when we were kids, you know, they use metal amalgams and those were, those use mercury. So they looked at gallium as a replacement. So there's kind of been a bunch of here and there studies where people have looked at it, but all of these things that I'm mentioning to you are, it's kind of a subtlety, but you know, what I'm showing you here is gallium metal, but if you take a vitamin that has iron or magnesium or any of these kind of micronutrients that you hear about, those are metal salts. Just like if you put uh, table salt on your French fries, you know, sodium is a metal, but when you're eating it on your French fries, you're eating sodium salt. And so those metals don't have really a way to dissolve into your body. It's, it's the, the salts that, that are ultimately being used for a lot of these applications. But, but for that one study I mentioned, we did put actual blobs of little blobs of liquid metal in the body. And, and that was also fun. Again, for your listeners, I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend eating it. <laughs> and is it being used in any commercial application today? Yeah. So there, there are, um, and it's kind of funny, the timing of this talk, i Earlier today, I was just hosting a, a group of, I don't know, eight or so people that flew down um, that work at a company that makes some of these materials and they use them for a number of, of different applications and they're here just visiting. But probably the most high profile one that just came out recently was in the Sony PlayStation. They are using liquid metals to help dissipate heat from the, the computer chip that goes inside of the PlayStation. So there's videos you can find online. They call them delitting videos where they take apart the, the PlayStation and um, sure enough, there are liquid metals in there. And, and the idea is that as transistors get smaller and smaller and you pack more of them, more of them onto a chip, it generates a lot of heat. And metals are a really good way to, re to remove that heat. 
that's not the most exciting example, but the point is that there are examples where people probably have this in their house and they probably don't even realize it because it's inside the packaging. Gallium itself is used for other some other things. It's used as a precursor for some semiconductor materials called gallium nitride, gallium arsenide. These are like high-performing semiconductors, so there's that. People use them at research universities to for very, a very sophisticated tool that's called a focused ion beam. Have you ever heard of that? No. No, so it's called FIB. It's a it's a beam of it's in a, inside of a vacuum chamber. It's a beam of ions that they literally focus down, kind of like a laser beam, but with ions, and they can use it to cut materials. So it's uh, pretty wild. So those are those are like you know things that are in existence now that use this particular material. But what we're trying to do, and other people, we're trying to use it kind of for more futuristic things. So, like what? Yeah, like what? So, so one of them is trying to make electronics that are soft or stretchable, soft and or stretchable. So, you know, m- most electronic devices that you encounter in your day to day life, like the computer that we're talking on now, your cell phone, all these things are made out of rigid materials. But our bodies do all these amazing things, and they're essentially soft. It's if you take away the bones, you're like the stuff that does most of the work, like your brain, your your fingers, your muscles, all this are made out of soft materials. So part of this is sort of a little science fictiony, you know, can we can we use that as inspiration? But I think there's also some practical things like people are looking at wearable devices or making electronics into clothing that could actually deform, be worn comfortably on the body. There's also this entire little subfield that's called soft robotics. And I'm kind of on the periphery of it. But the idea is to try to make, you know, when at least when I think of a robot, I think of something that you might see in like a, a car factory with like sparks shooting and these like robotic arms moving around. Not a very safe place for humans, but there's this idea of trying to make robots soft, more like an octopus, because you have sort of unlimited degrees of freedom of motion. You know, an octopus can fit, in, <clears throat> fit through like a beer bottle can contort itself. It can, can it can wrap around and grab things. It can do all these complex things, but it's completely soft. And so, you know, if you can start imagining putting sensors or other electronics inside of a material that's like that, that's also kind of of interest. Actually, part of the group of people that are here today, they're interested in, in 3D printing. So, you know, there's these 3D printers that can print plastics, print, print polymers, but they're not compatible with printing metals. So one of the videos I can show you later, we we take 3D printed parts and then we inject liquid metal. So it allows you to pattern the metals in ways that just aren't possible with copper or aluminum because it's a liquid at room temperature. And I haven't even said this yet, but probably like the most important thing for us and the reason a lot of this works is that the metal reacts with air on its surface and it forms a skin on its surface. Actually, let me, you'll appreciate this. Let me, it's just right over here. I'll grab it. Yeah. So this is this is just gallium, and my student molded it into the shape of North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, I'm holding it like this because if I held it, you know, like this for too long, it would melt and turn into a puddle. And the viscosity of this of this metal is when it melts, it's like water. So think of it like um, like a metallic water. Another interesting thing about this material, it's got the largest surface tension. So remember, it doesn't evaporate. That's very very weird. It's got the largest surface tension of any liquid. So to demonstrate that to you, you know, if you take salad dressing, like oil and water, and you you shake it, it forms a bunch of little droplets. Well, this one, if I shake it as violently as I can, well, it did form a couple of droplets, but it very quickly goes back together. 
So the surface tension of water is, I'm not going to tell you the units because it's not important, but it's about 70. This is like 700. Wow. So it'd be like walking around on earth and seeing a bunch of people that are like five feet tall, six feet tall, five feet tall, six feet tall. And then all of a sudden someone that's 50, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's the same like Dwayne thing. Johnson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very unusual. It's not like shades of gray. It's like most liquids you encounter day to day are down here. And this one's like way up. But anyway, so this other one, which is exactly the same material, but because it's reacted with air, it forms a shell on its surface. So, you know, think about what happens to a waterbed. If you remove the shell of the waterbed, the liquid just flows out. But this one's got the shell that holds it in that How shape. How tough is that shell? Is it like normal metal? So that shell is an oxide, so it's actually a glass. So it's, it's not very strong, and it's only three nanometers thick. How did you get introduced to all of this? I was very, very lucky. So actually, my, my PhD, believe it or not, was on a different topic. I was studying polymers, which, which has come in handy, but that's, I've kind of gone off the reservation a little bit here. Uh, so I didn't even know what liquid metals were when I was a PhD student. But uh, one of my friends, uh, good friends during my postdoc, postdoc is like a kind of an apprenticeship that you do between once you get your PhD and then before you become a professor. Um, so I met it, met somebody then and still a good friend to the state. And uh, he had made the observation that if you took this these liquids and you touched a drop to this to a surface and then you pulled, it acted more like bubblegum. In other words, it formed like a like a cone shape. It, it would they call that necking where the liquid will kind of pinch in. Whereas if you do that with a droplet of water and you you touch a droplet of water, I mean, heck, I can do it right now. I've got got my water here. You know, if I if I touch and drop it to my hand and then pull away, I just end up with two puddles, one puddle on the tip of my finger and one on my skin. And so he made this observation that it formed more like what bubblegum would do. And so that raised the question, like, why is it behaving this way? And well, the answer ends up being pretty simple. It's it's reacting with air and it's forming a, a solid shell on its surface. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention this, but that shell forms so fast that it's it's basically immediate. So one time on accident, we accidentally squirted some of the metal out of a syringe, like out of a, a nozzle, and it came out and it formed a fiber, like it formed a wire. So, you know, like when you turn on your garden hose, it forms a cylinder of liquid, but that cylinder eventually breaks up into little droplets because of surface tension. This is like shooting a liquid out of a hose and having more hose form around the liquid. It's like forming its own shell as it goes. Oh, because the, the syringe or the nozzle was metal. Well, the syringe was metal, but you just, when you shoot it out, it starts reacting with air. And that air, the air reacts, it forms a, this shell as you go. So you can for, cool. sort of form its own container in a way. Have you looked at it doing, performing that action under like a high-speed camera? We have done some, we do have a high-speed camera in our lab. And those are, you know, those are super fun to play with because you can see I think a normal video plays at like 30 frames per second, like probably what we're seeing on the computer. But these can do, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands. I think the state-of-the-art cameras can do a million frames per second. It's just incredible. Um, and we have done, we have looked at that, but just not that particular process. Um, what we have done is we've looked at what happens when you bring two of these droplets together. You know, the question is like, do they sit on each other, kind of like a, like building a snowman where you just stack mm -hmm. liquids or do they merge together and form a bigger droplet? and the answer is it, it, it sort of does a little bit of both. It, it merges together, but then it stops. So you end up with kind of looks like a figure eight where it's, they are, they merge together, but not into a single drop. So we've, we've used that actually to our benefit to make self-healing circuits. 
Wait, so they penetrate each other's shells, but they don't fully merge. Yeah, so I, I believe what it's really hard to study because you can't see inside. You can't see what's happened when you touch the material together because it's it's a metal, it's shiny. So you can't see it optically. A lot of like the what we call like spectroscopic techniques don't really work. So we kind of infer it based on the way it, it flows and also what happens when you pull them back apart. So if you touch two droplets very gently, you can pull them back apart. But anything other than that, they actually will merge back together. And I think what's happening is that very thin shell is breaking. Again, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's sort of like touching two waterbeds and then the water connecting between the beds. Now, the question is what happens to that shell of the waterbed, you know, and what, what I think is happening is it's just breaking and you're, you're able to make metal-metal contact. So we've actually used this, and there's another cool video we can see, but where you can take a, a, a wire of this stuff and cut it. And, you know, when you cut your skin, sometimes blood comes out, but usually it forms a scab. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't know what else could come out. But yeah, but when the blood does start coming out, you, you know, it forms a scab. And actually part of that is triggered. There's a cascade mechanism whereby, whereby that happens, but um, it's triggered by oxygen. And this is sort of the same thing. When you cut it, the metal gets exposed to more oxygen and it forms a new skin. And so it doesn't leak out. So like this thing that I showed you, the little sophisticated circuit, if you were to cut this with scissors, the liquid doesn't come out. It stays flush with where you cut it. So then this is just, a, this is actually sort of boring. It's just silicone, kind of like um, like bathroom caulk, like real, real common. I can see why you're so interested in this stuff and you, you, you're spending time. I get to talk to scientists, you know, here and there or researchers and professors. I can almost like always see like the full extent of it, you know, in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I, I kind of wrap my mind around this. This seems like there's still stuff to discover about this material. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes I describe this material as like solutions looking for problems because it's got so many unique properties. And sometimes people, they have the same reaction you did. Oh, liquid metal must be toxic. Oh, liquid metal, it must be must be mercury or something. So I feel kind of funny saying this because I, like I said, I didn't even know what it was when I was a grad student, but I'm kind of going around telling people how cool this material is. And we haven't even, I mean, we barely talked about the, the electrochemistry stuff that's really interesting. It also can do some really interesting things like for electrochemically, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's called ca- uh, catalytically. So it can help drive certain reactions, including reducing carbon dioxide. So there's some really nice work done done in Australia, some of my friends in Australia, where they've shown that you can convert CO2 back into carbon. That sounds like a miracle material. And of course, you know, there's more to the story there. You'd have some energy source to do this. But, but the point is, it, it, it does things that just you wouldn't necessarily think of. So the, one of the breakthroughs here as far as science goes is that this is a, a novel non-contact method to man- manipulate and shape fluids. Are there other fluids that can be shaped through, without contact mm. that can also act as like a metal? No, it's very difficult. So, so usually when we want to manipulate fluids, you know, we put them into pipes. You know, like if we want to f- flow water to our house or something, we put it in a pipe and flow it underground. There's tricks to manipulate droplets, like to suspend droplets and kind of get them to levitate and stuff like that. But as far as I know, there's nothing that could take a, first of all, take a stream and make it into a cylinder and then and also just get it to, to move at, at will. So I don't know, there's, there could be some kind of cool stuff that maybe could be done here, um, particularly with like patterning the metal, using it somehow for circuits. But Dude, this is awesome. This is, 
you're a really good teacher, man. You're you're oh, really good you. at communicating and and explaining things, and you're pleasant to talk to. So your students are very lucky because I remember going through school, and it was rare that I would get a teacher that was was great like you. Oh, thank you. There's not a lot of things I do well, but I, I do I do like sharing our work and, and teaching it. But I I'd probably flip that on its head a little bit and say that I'm lucky to work with the students. We have really good students here, and um, everything I've shown you was really done by students. So. So yeah, it kind of cuts both ways, but thank you for saying that. Yeah, if we've got parents that are, we got a lot of parents that listen and they they might want to direct their kids at some of this liquid metal type stuff. Tell me a little bit about what you would suggest to them as far as this being something in the future that they might want to start early learning about. Yeah, so they're at the right place if they're listening to this podcast. Um, do have a YouTube channel where if it's a young kid, I think, a lot of times I, I wonder about the impact of our work. You know, we're scientists, we publish papers. Sometimes I'd like to joke you know, if I'm happy if 20 people read one of our research papers. And of course, it's more than that, but the, it's on that scale, you know, tens to hundreds of people. But these YouTube videos, it, it really helps um, make a lot of this accessible. So a lot of the work that we do is, is essentially funded by taxpayer dollars in, in many cases. And so I, I, I liked putting it out there and, and kind of giving back and hopefully getting people excited about it. So That'd probably be the first place I'd start. Um, you know, I've got a, a TEDx talk that I think does a, an okay job at uh, sort of explaining why the material is interesting. But then, you know, beyond that, believe it or not, you can buy gallium on Amazon. Again, you don't want to eat it. Uh, if you do <laughs> eat a little bit, it's not not, not going to hurt you. But, um, but it, you know, it's, this is not super exotic material. So, so actually, uh, gallium is right below aluminum in the periodic table. I didn't mention this earlier. And you might remember from like high school chemistry that if they're in the same column, that means they're like brothers or sisters. They've got very similar properties. But the big difference is gallium melts at a very low temperature. And oh, by the way, gall so gallium melts at 30 Celsius and it boils at over 2000. It's like 2400 or something like that. I don't know a lot about this stuff. Could it turn into a gas? So if you heated it up enough, you would start evaporating it. But I think people uh, in the literature, the lowest temperature where I've seen somebody even be able to measure we call vapor pressure is 500 degrees Celsius. So that's way hotter than your, like your oven can go at home. Yeah. So yeah, in, in practice, if you're just playing with this stuff, uh, be difficult. Now you can react it with other things. And when you react it, when, if you cook on a, a charcoal grill, you turn a piece of charcoal into carbon dioxide and it becomes a gas. So you, you could do something like that. Um, people call those like metal organic precursors and stuff like that. So there's, it's, you can make gases that contain gallium, but if you just bought the metal, it, it would not be. But anyway, that, that's another place. Um, there are, I think, it used to be at least like if you go to Walgreens or, you know, drugstore kind of place, some old-fashioned thermometers. I don't, I don't know why anybody would buy old-fashioned thermometers when you can just buy a kind of a digital one. But um, anyway, I have one of these here, and it's it's got gallium. I think oh, this okay. is actually gallium, indium, and tin. And again, those are like adding salt to, to lower the melting point. So there are that's another commercial product. It's not super high tech or anything. And we're trying to think a little bit beyond that. But so those are places where you could, if you really wanted to get your hands on on some of this stuff. I will mention another, it's kind of good and, well, it's an interesting thing, but it, and it's kind of a bad thing about this. Well, there's two things. One is that gallium is expensive. So a gram of this stuff is about a, I don't know, a dollar or less than a dollar, which depending on what you compare it to is could be cheaper, expensive. But I, I can't imagine a world where we're going to be making like power lines with this with this material. But the little thingy that I showed you here, this is actually an antenna. 
this is like a few pennies worth of material. So in that sense, it's not cost prohibitive. So, but anyway, that's kind of one downside of this material. And then the other, I don't know, I'd call it a feature. It could be good or bad, but it, it will um, form metal bonds with other metals. And in some cases can do so very aggressively. So in the case of aluminum, it will diffuse into what's called the grain boundaries. So the, the, the boundaries between aluminum crystals. So if you have a piece of aluminum, like aluminum foil, there's a bunch of crystals that are all connected together and it will go into the boundaries between those and it will cause it to fall apart. Hmm. So that's called embrittlement. And that's bad news if you have something valuable made out of aluminum because it will, <laughs> you can literally take a piece of aluminum foil and just, it'll just crumble apart when aluminum touch or gallium then that's what we should make all the uh android robots out of (laughs) exactly that's how we'll take them down (laughs) yeah gallium guns we're doing it got super soakers full of gallium yeah because the thing i was telling you really you could squirt it out and it would form a look like a laser beam yeah that's what we could do yeah it doesn't do it with all metals like we found stainless steel and copper it doesn't do those things but um anyway it's, it's one of the concerns people have it's like well if i I put gallium in my fancy computer. Like, is it going to destroy the computer chip and that kind of thing? Is there anything that does that to plastic? Yes. And from a different mechanism, but not nearly as kind of cool. So there's what people call plasticizers, which are actually these days kind of a no-no because plasticizers are sometimes used in plastics and they can end up in drinking water and that kind of thing. But plasticizers are just like molecules that can go in between the the polymer chains and help help them kind of expand and become softer. So there's a great example. Of this is, you know, PVC pipe that you probably yeah. have in your house, right? It's like really hard, rigid material. That's PVC, polyvinyl chloride. PVC can also be used for shower curtains, which are nice and soft and pliable. Um, and the difference is the shower curtains have plasticizers in them. Okay. And actually the uh, new car smell, I, I was told, I don't I never actually looked this up, but I've told that those are also plasticizers that are in the plastics inside the car. So it smells nice, but it's, you're not really supposed to be breathing them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right for humans, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, it's not as dramatic. The aluminum, it like just crumbles apart, you know. Um, so we should write Elon Musk on Twitter and say, hey, when you're making your army of humanoid robots, make them out of <laughs> aluminum, please. Thank you. Great idea. Well, dude, Michael, man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? That was great. It made me feel real welcome. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.